Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode of The Litigation War Room, I speak with Doug Lalone, an engineer and patent attorney with the intellectual property firm Fishman Stewart. Doug tells the story of a very interesting case he handled involving a design patent for a rifle scope. The case involved not only cutting-edge issues in IP law, but also intersected with a criminal prosecution. Doug offers insights on dealing with scorched-earth litigation tactics and on putting together a winning strategy. After my discussion with Doug Lalone, please stick around for our Sponsor Spotlight interview with Sean Fitzpatrick of Fort's Legal Support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Doug Lalone, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thank you, Max. appreciate you uh, having me on board today. Well, it's a real treat to have you on the Litigation War Room, Doug. You are a partner with the intellectual property firm Fishman Stewart. That makes you my law partner. You're a fabulous IP attorney. You're an entrepreneur. You're many things. And I look forward to talking to you about your practice and about a very interesting case called Leapers Inc. v. SMTS, which involves a lot of intrigue, many twists and turns, extradition, the FBI, very interesting result at the end. So excited to hear your thoughts and insights about that case today. Yep, you bet. It was an interesting case with lots of twists and turns and various legal nuances. So I look forward to having a conversation with you about it. Well, before we get into that, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and about your law firm? Yeah, so I'm a partner at uh, Fishman Stewart. As you indicated, we're partners here in Troy, Michigan. Fishman Stewart is a middle market boutique intellectual property law firm. And we, as a, a group, focus on identifying, securing, and leveraging the innovations of our clients with the key purpose of helping increase enterprise value. So we're a collaborative team with uh, 20 plus attorneys and staff, and uh, we help focus on building enterprise value for our innovators. You do all areas of intellectual property law, but I know you're a a patent attorney with a a background in engineering. Can you tell us about your former life as an engineer and how you made the the leap to patent and IP law? Yeah, so um, after matriculating from high school back in Indiana, I uh, went on to Purdue University and graduated with a mechanical engineering technology degree. And after graduating, I started to work for Navistar, which is a heavy-duty trucking company. You see the big heavy-duty semis rolling down the roads. They say Navistar on the front of them. Previously, they were called International Harvester, if you go back 30, 40, 50 years ago. Well, uh, Navistar has a, uh, or had, I should say, an engineering facility in Fort Wayne. So I started working there in the body design group, designing body components, air dams, hoods, instrument panels, things on the inside of the cab, et cetera. About the first year or two in engineering, one of my buddies in my design room, we were sitting at the drafting board then. That was I'm dating myself back in the 1986 time frame. We were still using drafting boards back then. He was going to law school. So that was the beginning of me piquing an interest about this intersection of engineering and law. Well, that's great. And uh, how long have you been with Fishman Stewart? I started working at Fishman Stewart about 2007. So boy, we've been... Uh, going up on 15 years now. It doesn't seem possible, but it's gone yeah, fast. Really, really? It's gone fast. And I've been practicing uh, now for 30 years. So all in the Oakland County market here in Michigan, because when I graduated from law school from Valparaiso back in 91, I moved up to Oakland County and started working with a uh, prestigious law firm here in the Troy area. 
And I've been practicing in this space here for uh, in the IP space as a registered patent attorney for uh, about 30 years now, over 30 years. And Doug, you are definitely one of the more entrepreneurial attorneys that I know. It seems like you're involved in everything. Can you just tell us a little bit about the various ways you're involved in the community and the business community in particular? Yeah, actually, yeah, I've, uh, I'm the past president of ACG Detroit, which is a middle market mergers and acquisitions group. And you may be wondering, why is a, a patent attorney hanging out with people like that? Well, it's a, a simple answer. There are a lot of great uh, business people in ACG Detroit, and it's the people who are in the business of buying and selling companies. And uh, with that, I like to work with companies that are being bought and sold and helping do due diligence on their intellectual property assets so as to help increase enterprise value. So Working ACG is great, as well as uh, with the Michigan Venture Capital Association. Our firm is a sponsor of MVCA, as well as the Michigan Manufacturing Association. So I'm involved in a lot of different organizations, including uh, my church, Kissington Church, based out of here, Troy, Michigan. So I get to do a lot of different fun things with some very creative and interesting people. For sure. Now, here on the Litigation War Room, we like to drill down on interesting cases. And you and I had lunch a few months ago, and you told me about this Leapers case, which, as we indicated in the introduction, had a number of um, unusual twists and turns. It's an IP case, a trade dress case, as I understand it, involving a, a rifle scope, the design of a rifle scope. But this was not your routine, plain vanilla trademark case. I'd like you to tell us a bit about that case, kind of walk us through it. Maybe a good place to start would be just tell us about that rifle scope, if you could, and the, the design that was at issue, and then maybe set the table with, with some of the facts of the case. Sure, absolutely. So around 2014, a new client out of California, Charlie She, had contacted us regarding a rifle scope that he was selling. He worked at a uh, rifle scope manufacturing company in China, and he moved to the U.S. to be an entrepreneur and started his own business, starting selling rifle scopes and other accessories and things like that. An interesting twist here, one of the scopes that he was selling had these knobs on the top surfaces. So if you picture, if you ever saw a rifle scope, there are knobs on the horizontal and the vertical side of it. And the purpose of those knobs are to help adjust the scope so it can hit its target out there 100 yards or 200 yards or, or further. So there was a lawsuit filed in 2014 here in Eastern District of Michigan where we reside, where we practice here, Max. I have to ask, Doug, I know you're a serious hunter. I'm a bit of a hunter myself, though not nearly as serious of an outdoorsman as you are. Were you able to snag that case because of your background as an outdoorsman? Well, yeah, it, it helped. Plus, uh, it came through a good referral friend of mine in my network in California. But they knew that I was an avid outdoorsman. I had used rifle scopes. I have experience with them. So it was a natural product that uh, did not require me to get up to speed on. So it was a natural fit. Now, this case, as I understand it, began with criminal charges and arrest against your client. Tell us a little bit about that. That's not the usual way that a trademark case starts. That is the most unusual way. And I've never seen a trademark case in my 30 years of practice start with that event. It started with my client, who's from California, attending a trade show in January 2014. And he was at this trade show. Uh, he wasn't exhibiting. He was walking around visiting exhibits. So minding his own business, just walking around. And lo and behold, uh, there was a sting operation basically set up there where he was arrested at the trade show. And he was arrested uh, based upon a warrant issued by a judge in Indiana. 
And the FBI arrested him in Las Vegas, put him in a van, handcuffed him, and drove him across the United States where he was arraigned in a courtroom in southern Indiana in 2014. Can you expound a little bit on what he was charged with? So Indiana has this civil and criminal statute that deals with anti-counterfeiting. It's very, very broadly interpreted by the the judges in Indiana, both on the civil side and the criminal side. So the plaintiff in this case, Leapers, had worked with a uh, agent down in Indiana to effectively put together a case which resulted in a search warrant being issued against my client to be arrested at the trade show and then held up for violation of that criminal counterfeiting statute in the state of Indiana before a criminal court. Okay. And then how did that lead to or dovetail with or connect with the civil case that you handled? Yeah. So he was arrested in January 2014. And by June of 2014, the plaintiff in that case had then filed a civil trade dress case, a different form of intellectual property that you and I work with, but it's a trade dress case here in Michigan, asserting violation of those rifle scope knobs that we talked about. I call them scallops on a scope. They were asserting the theory in the civil side of law of trade dress here in Michigan now, which was was for the exact same product that was at issue in the criminal case uh, down in Indiana. So this was an expansion of the campaign that the plaintiff rolled out to go after my client, who was a competitor of the plaintiff. Well, how did you go about tackling this case when it landed in your lap? Well, by the time we got on board after the case was filed here in 2014, we realized that we had a criminal front, so we need to get some criminal expertise. So we had a criminal law firm down in Indianapolis on board to represent my client on the criminal side of things. So in parallel with that, we had to coordinate our activities here with the civil case for trade dress infringement. So uh, we were there was a lot of coordination going on. And as you can appreciate, there are Fifth Amendment rights at issue when it comes to the criminal side of things. So we had a very delicate balancing act weighing both sides of those cases, but yet still proceed forward and make sure we were defending our client as best as possible. In the civil case here in Michigan, we, of course, filed an answer. We developed a case. We had some depositions, exchanged documents. It was very, very, very hotly contested up here on the civil side of the equation. Okay. And and that was going in parallel with the criminal case in Indiana? Yeah, exactly. The case up here in front of Judge Cleland was going on full speed ahead with discovery and everything taking place. Meanwhile, the criminal case was slowly etching along. The criminal cases move very slow. And in that case, we wanted to prove to the judge down in Indiana on the criminal side that the criminal case really didn't warrant being kept a criminal case anymore. And ultimately, the criminal case was thrown out. And on about that same uh, time in 2015, Leapers then retooled in Indiana and filed a civil lawsuit asserting basically the essentially the same counterfeiting statute, this time pursuing a claim in Indiana on the civil side where they were not successful on the criminal side. Again, this was part of the, I'll call it trench warfare for lack of better description, that the plaintiff was engaged in against my client. Now, there were a series of defendants involved in the Michigan case. It wasn't just my client. My client's customers, the end customers were also sued as well as part of the trade dress suit. So there were a host of different defendants here in Michigan before Judge Cleland. What was the case about? What were some of the key issues? 
Yeah, from our perspective, we knew that the plaintiff had a difficult time proving this concept of trade dress. And trade dress, which was their key cause of action against the defendants here in Michigan, all dealt with the smooth, continuous, wave-like scalloping shapes on the knobs of the scope. And you have one of those scopes there with you right now, Max. And as you can see, there are knurling configurations on those knobs. And so we had to put together a case that really tackled the proofs that the plaintiffs had to come forward with in their case. And the, the proofs in a trade dress cause of action are really threefold. Do you want me to mention them real quick? That would be helpful. We have a general audience. And so it might be helpful to pause and just articulate a little more. What is trade dress infringement? And then, yeah, please walk through those elements because I think that will help to, to understand the case. So in our area of intellectual property, you typically hear of patents, trademarks, and copyrights. There's this other thing called know-how and trade dress. Trade dress is somewhat of an offshoot of trademark law. In fact, the Lanham Act is a statute enacted by Congress, which is kind of an additional catch-all cause of action that plaintiffs can use when they don't have a patent or a trademark registered or a copyright or a design patent, so on and so forth. So a trade dress, basically by definition, refers to the image and overall appearance of a product, a physical thing. So the scope qualifies from the standpoint of it's a product, and the theory of the action by the plaintiff in this case was that the, the neural shapes on the actual knobs of the scope, those had an ornamental configuration to them, and they thought that those were proprietary. So a trade dress is a, a looser kind of cause of action in the intellectual property field. And what the plaintiff kind of articulates it to be, so they have to actually identify the monopoly they're claiming under this thing called trade dress. So here they were going after the images or the shape or the overall ornamental appearance of those uh, scallops on the scope knobs themselves. Right. So basically on the rifle scope, you have a little knob. And Doug, you were kind enough uh, since we... We're in the same office to to show me, and I've got it. This is just by audio, but I'm just looking at it right now. You've got the rifle scope. There's a little knob on top, and it's got little, you're calling them scallops, but basically indentations around that knob. Yep, exactly. And the plaintiff claimed that that was part of an ornamental design that was the part of the trade dress, proprietary trade dress of its product that couldn't be copied or, or used by by others. Exactly. And And on the flip side... They could have gone after what's called a design patent, which protects the ornamental appearance of a product. Right. They didn't do that in this instance. And so they chose this alternative route as a, a last chance, I'll call it, called trade dress rights to try to protect it. Now, here's an interesting point. The plaintiff had filed a trademark application seeking protection on that same concept, the same design, the same knob. And it was rejected because it was functional. And we, of course, use that as evidence in our case. Well, I think that when you first showed it to me, I think that was my first question was, hello, isn't this functional? These little indentations, don't they help you turn the dial or turn the knob? That was really the key issue or one of the key issues in the case was the functionality of those scallops. Right, yeah. And the plaintiff has a three-pronged proof when establishing a trade dress. And the first element is that it's non-functional. We seized on that moment, had an expert opine on functionality. They were a scope expert. They talked about gripping those knobs in the winter with gloves are more easily accomplished and adjustable when you have knobs versus, you know, picture a pipe, trying to turn a pipe in the dead of winter to adjust something yeah. versus if you put 
knurls on it, put knobs on it, you can grip it more easily. So one of our themes in the case was that it was functional, it was primarily functional. And Judge Cleveland uh, seized on that and agreed with us that that first element of functionality weighed in our favor in our motion for summary judgment. What was the phrase you used? You, you mentioned when we were chatting about this uh, earlier, Johnny Cochran, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. You, you had a slogan for this case. And my equivalent to that was uh, scallops on the scope. They're functional. And so <laughs> the scallops on a scope, if you look at that, it looks like scallops to me. By the way, I like eating scallops. Reminds me of the shell from a scallop. And sure enough, they are scalloped shaped. So that was our theme, scallops on a scope. Right. And the court picked up with that theme as well. And that helped us with uh, the theme throughout the case, the showing, indeed, those knobs are functional. Okay, so you filed a motion for a summary on this issue after going through discovery and Judge Cleland, well, what, what was it? He, he agreed with you. Yeah, he agreed with us. We filed a motion for a summary judgment. Uh, there are three prongs. Uh, the other side has a burden as a moving party. You have to prove that it's, the design's non-functional, that it's acquired secondary meaning, and that the design is confusingly similar. That is, our design is confusingly similar to the plaintiff's design. And on the issue of secondary meaning, the court got into it. One interesting thing is the other side put together survey evidence, and you'll appreciate this as a trademark attorney. The survey evidence the other side put forth was really weak. And you've probably heard of this theory of evidence of confusion and statistically speaking. Well, they put forward a survey that said there was 0.5 evidence of confusion. Well, the case law requires a much super higher threshold than that. So the judge looked at that and said, you know, at least that element on the survey evidence really showed that the, their secondary meaning evidence and some other factors were weak. But he really turned the case in a decision on the fact that, hey, these knobs are functional. So you won on summary, and then you had another motion, I guess, pending at the same time, a motion for fees based on the exceptional case provision of the, the Lanham Act. They appealed that, but, but Judge Cleveland went ahead and ruled on your motion for fees? Yeah, so we knew the case was going up on appeal. So thought we thought we'd finally timely file our motion for fees under Section 1117 of the Trademark Statute. And under that theory, there's a body of case law that says plaintiffs in uh, lawsuits, prevailing plaintiffs, are entitled to their fees. And that's a, that stems from a body of patent law. Well, the Congress has adopted that in the trademark space as well. Well, we had a little hurdle to get over, and that was that we were the prevailing defendant prevailing defendants, all of us as a, as a whole. The court said, you're a prevailing party. I agree. The court went through and looked at the other factors for ex determining an exceptional case. And they really come down and said that the case brought by a plaintiff was unmistakably a weak trade dress case. They found that the plaintiff had a hyper-aggressive strategy targeting his competitor across multiple forums. And they pursued numerous public forums. They had a public arrest criminal prosecution, all at a great expense to the defendants, including my client who spent a night in jail or two as a result of this, of being detained on the floor during the uh, Las Vegas trade show back in 2014. So the court went through and weighed a bunch of different factors. And one thing that we noticed in this case was another theme. You know, I said scallops on a scope. We use that theme to drive home the functionality on it. We also want to drive home a different theme in the case about the hyper-aggressiveness by the plaintiff here. The plaintiff had hired a investigative firm, we'll call them, down in Indiana, who in big letters on their website touted the fact that they had unique ways of getting prosecutions through the system. And they had connections within the judicial community to help prosecute parties. And the judge picked up on that and thought that was 
a little overboard by the plaintiff to be engaging with an agent down in Indiana where my client was never there. The plaintiffs were in Michigan. So nobody was in Indiana except this investigative firm who used these aggressive tactics to take on these cases. The judge didn't like any of that. And we leveraged that fact pattern in this case. Yeah, that really leaped out from the page at me as I was reviewing some of the opinions in preparing for this interview. Um, I have this opinion where Judge Cleland grants your your motion for fees. And yeah, he quotes language from their website stating, our attorneys promote the creative use of state civil statutes like the Indiana Crime Victims Act, which provides enhanced civil penalties for various crimes against property and so on. We assist state and local police agencies enforcing state criminal statutes as opposed to relying solely on federal law enforcement. And I can't say I've ever come across anything like that before. Not only were they doing it, but they were bragging about it on their website. I assume their argument was, hey, this is within the letter of the law, what we're pursuing. But he really put that together with the weakness of their case. He found them to be on very thin grounds, at least as I read the opinion, as a legal matter. And that together with this kind of gonzo legal strategy and they're bragging about it on their website, the case stunk to him as he made pretty clear in his opinion and warranted fees under the the Lanham Act. Yeah, I think that kind of weighed in the the judge's mind that he felt that perhaps this was brought in subjective bad faith and the case is objectively baseless. And when you weigh all the different factors, couple that with this this hyper-aggressive activity by an outside agent in Indiana, leveraging these tactics in Indiana against my client from California. The judge looked all that and said, this is an exceptional case. Of course, there are other factors that the court looked at, but those things weighed heavily in our favor of the court granting our motion for attorney's fees. And he granted a substantial amount of our fees. We were very pleased with that result. Yeah. And so then there were more interesting twists and turns. My understanding is the case came to a resolution while the case was still on appeal. But tell us how that played out. Yeah, so the summary judgment motion came down in our favor in uh, 2017. And of course, the appeals began, and then we got the ruling, and also by the exceptional case by the judge in 2017. And so that started the clock ticking. So the parties briefed everything. We had oral argument before the court down in Cincinnati, the Sixth Circuit, before a three-panel judge. And during that process of oral argument and coming back in that, we the parties ensued settlement discussions, and we actually ended up resolving the lawsuit before the Sixth Circuit actually ruled. It was before it ruled, and yet an opinion still came down. Was the ink still drying when the opinion came down from the Sixth Circuit? It was barely dry. I think I have a smudge on my thumb still from the, the ink <laughs> from the courthouse. So in January 2018, within, I, I can't recall exact dates, like within a month after we'd, we'd reached an agreement and signed the papers, closed out the case, then the Sixth Circuit, you know, that ship has sailed. They were already writing opinion. They actually issued opinion in reverse in favor of the plaintiff because they found a question of fact. Yep. After all that work. That doesn't mean you lost the whole case, but it meant the summary judgment decision was reversed. And but for the settlement, you would have been headed for trial and it would have been up to the jury to decide whether those scallops were functional and the other issues. Yeah, exactly. Basically, the the Sixth Circuit came down, looked at the case law, looked at the facts and thought, well, the district court judge may have been a little quick to issue the motion. There could have been some questions of fact on this issue of functionality. And so as a result of that, the case was returned back to the uh, district court for further ruling. But by that time, we'd actually uh, settled the case. 
Wow. Well, that's amazing uh, timing, an interesting turn, and maybe a, a fitting conclusion to an interesting saga. And then by then, the Indiana civil case had resolved? This was the end of it or was resolved as part of this? Well, actually, we had a global settlement. So the settlement that we reached was global, covered anything and everything, and uh, everything was dismissed. So the client was pleased with the outcome. The question or one of the questions that all of this raises in my mind is just, what are your thoughts? What are your reflections? What can you tell our listeners about dealing with a gonzo, over-the-top attorney on the other side who is employing a scorched earth strategy. Again, I'm sure their defense is, look, this is all authorized by law. We didn't overstep our bounds. I haven't heard any um, suggestion that any of this was sanctionable. The judge may not have liked it, may have weighed these things in granting your motion for fees. But I think there's no question that some of these tactics are really over the top. So what are your thoughts on how you deal with with that kind of scorched earth strategy? Yeah, I think a takeaway here is when you're developing your theme, Early in the case, like scallops on the scope and really looking at the law and the position of the parties, taking a, a good gut check, do we have a good viable position? And I really felt we had a strong position about the functionality of the, of the scope's designs. And so I think when you're pressed with criminal case simultaneous with a civil case, you really have to take a, a good hard look and have an honest assessment. What's our likelihood of success? Where are we at? And you, know, and, and you weigh that. And that determines your path forward and uh, how you develop your themes. And in this case, we felt as though, despite the rough tactics we were hit with by the plaintiff, that we had a good solid theme going forward. The facts were in our favor. We felt the law was in our favor. We certainly had the, I would say sympathy card, but we certainly had some bad set of events happen to our client, which is would not play well in a jury, in front of a jury at all. And we thought that whole messaging theme would, would do well in front of a jury. I couldn't wait to get this in front of a jury. We resolved it, short of that, of course. But I would say just have a good gut check about your theme and is it viable? If not, you're going to have to choose a different route to try to resolve the dispute. But rather than responding in kind, it sounds like you sort of doubled down on your approach was, let's get the law right, let's get the facts right, let's get our theme right and make sure that it's persuasive. And then let's take this as far as we need to go because this is going to play really well to a jury. Yeah. And one of the things that we had a little challenge, and that is because there were criminal proceedings against my client, we actually allowed the deposition of him go forward here in the Eastern District in our office. And at certain points of the deposition, I advised my client to take the fifth, which is unusual in a civil case. The other side, of course, didn't like that. They thought we were overreaching with the scope of the times in which the client took the fifth. So we stopped the deposition, got the court on, on the phone, and the other side complained to the judge that, hey, Lalone's interfering here inappropriately. He's advising his client in this civil case to be taken the Fifth Amendment. Can you straighten him out here, Your Honor? So, of course, the judge suggested that we um, let the client answer more questions around certain areas that perhaps weren't so sensitive, that perhaps he could be talking about that were relevant in the civil case. And so we finished the deposition with the client answering some questions. The other side used that against us. They used it in the motion practice that, hey, the plaintiff here was withholding evidence. He won't testify. He must be hiding something. Perhaps he could be testifying about the scopes not being functional. And so the Sixth Circuit picked up on that and said, perhaps there's something to this where the defendant would not testify on certain questions about functionality or secondary meaning and different things like that. And the Sixth Circuit used that against us and coming to the point of maybe there is a question of fact, and we're going to weigh that against the moving party here, the defendants. 
So that was a, that was a challenge there, having to deal with both sides, the criminal side and the civil side in our situation here. Right. That is a really tricky issue. And it is rare, but it does come up. I've had it come up from time to time. And of course, in the criminal context, when someone invokes their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination, the prosecutor can't use that against him or her, the defendant, as evidence of guilt. But that's not true in the civil context. If you refuse to testify, you may be within your rights to do so, but you can get an adverse inference on the basis of that. The jury is entitled to draw the conclusion that you are guilty or that you're liable for the cause of action asserted against you if you refuse to testify. And that makes it really tricky. So here you are trying to protect your client from criminal liability, but meanwhile, he's got this huge civil <laughs> lawsuit where, you know, I'm sure you would have loved to testify in certain things. Yeah. And the criminal case, the counterfeiting case was regarding the same product, same issue, just a broadly interpreted statute in Indiana. Up here, we had a civil case for trade dress on the same product, which has a different interpretation under law as to how they apply the law here in Michigan for trade dress. So it, it was tough dealing with that, but we worked our way through it in a satisfactory manner at the end of the day. Let me just conclude with, with one question. If you're advising an attorney who is up against, you know, a gonzo, scorched earth attorney, and every case is unique, I mean, your case is unique, but what's not unique is uh, some of the scorched earth tactics that we're up against now and then. What's the one thing that you would tell an attorney to remember when responding to that kind of tactic? Yeah, well, one thing I would say, the judge did say he's never seen a case like this before. So it was unique in that regard, which led into him to the, the point that I think this is exceptional. I've never seen this before. And we agreed. But back to your question, I would say just move forward in a professional manner, gather your facts, understand the law, and do the best you can to represent the client, to get a, a positive resolution, and uh, don't go on the deep end. Don't try to retaliate. Just stay focused. It gets costly to stay focused. It's less expensive, I would submit, to stay focused on your plan of action than it would be going off and uh, going after side counterclaims and things that are not on point. So, you know, just stay focused and be professional about it. And I think the court in the end will reward you with a good decision. Yeah. Trust the facts, trust the law, trust the judge, ultimately trust the jury. Our, our system may not get it right all of the time, but especially in a civil setting, I think courts get it right most of the time. Yeah. And you just have to endure. Here we had an uphill battle. In January 2014, my client was arrested. In January 2018, the Sixth Circuit came down with a decision reversing us. But by that time, we settled the case. So four years have gone by. So perseverance comes to mind. Wow. That's a long four years, especially for your client. Yeah. So I feel bad for my client, but uh, things turned out okay for him. And I think he's doing well today. Well, Doug, this has been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed talking with you. Where can listeners find you or find out more about you? I would say the easiest thing would be to go to our website, fishstewip.com, F-I-S-H-S-T-E-W-I-P.com, and look up uh, Doug Lalone. you find uh, other podcasts, other webinars, and things I've done. And we have a, a cache of uh, intellectual property, white papers, and things to look at on there, by the way, if anybody's interested in patents, trademarks, and copyrights. So come check out our library. It's all free. Well, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for sharing your insights on the litigation war room. You're welcome. And I hope people enjoy listening about scallops on a scope. Have a great day. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Thanks. I am here with Sean Fitzpatrick. Sean is the owner of Fort's Legal Support. Fort's provides court reporting services and a whole array of legal support services. 
and Forts is also a generous sponsor of the Litigation War Room podcast. So it's a real pleasure to have Sean Fitzpatrick with me today. Sean, welcome. Thank you, Max. Appreciate it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Forts Legal and about the services that you provide? Absolutely. So we want to pride ourselves on being a true litigation support partner for litigation attorneys and law firms. And so while we have three core services, Max, of computer forensics, need discovery, nationwide court reporting, and trial services, clients and law firms have really come to rely on us for lots of different legal support services. You know, for example, we kind of met uh, during the pandemic because you needed some remote notary services. Right. Um, so while those aren't you know, part of our core three services, um, that's one that we do offer. We're doing a lot of mock trials, a lot of remote mock focus groups now, nationwide process service, reprographics, copy, scan, print. We've been a big partner in the legal community on administering remote conferences. We just uh, finished up the business section of the State Bar of Michigan with Mark Rossman, and you were there, Max. And so we put together that whole production. And so a lot of organizations, the labor section, different bankruptcy sections within the state and country have come to rely on us to host their used-to-be in-person seminars now via Zoom. And so we've been uh, experts at that now. And so, you know, international support, interpreting. So all these kind of ancillary services where people can call us up really with any kind of lit support need, and we can be a solution for them. Yeah, for sure. And I will tell you that I certainly think of you guys as basically a go-to for litigation support services, you know, since we started working together. And I'll just tell our listeners, this is totally unscripted, but it's absolutely true. I've called you on any number of occasions because I needed this or that. I needed a certainly a court reporter, needed remote notary services. And that's, I think, when we first started yeah. uh, working together. Need a process server and need this, that. You know, we had that symposium where I, you, you guys did the audiovisual for that. And um, I've been really impressed. And in particular, I don't know if this is by design or not, but I think of you guys as really the go-to for technology. And that's really what sets you apart from some of the competition is that you're totally comfortable with technology and you make it easy for us attorneys who either are not very adept at those things or just don't want to deal with it. Right. We just had a big association come to us, Max, and you know, there's partners from big major law firms that are associated with this bankruptcy seminar, and they're coming to Forts Legal in Michigan to help with this national presentation. So it just kind of speaks to, you know, our reach and our ability to kind of adapt to the new environment as well. And so I'm happy you said that, Max, because that's exactly kind of what we were going for. Good, good. That's great. And then segueing from what you said, you're based in Michigan, but you provide services nationwide. We do. Yeah. And especially during the pandemic, we really kind of embraced the new remote deposition platform. And we came up with a workflow of creating a, an exhibit index and providing an exhibit technician to actually help with the presentation of the exhibits. And so that got the attention of a lot of law firms across the country, not only here in Michigan. And so really, we were, we were getting work from you know firms in California, New York, Chicago, down in Florida, Indiana. So all across the country, we've been able to grow our business. And, you know, obviously we have our core group of clients here in Michigan and we're continuing to grow here in Michigan, but it's been really nice to be able to kind of showcase our, our solutions across the country as well. 
Right. Your approach to exhibits or your solution for exhibits and remote depositions, it's just super useful. It makes them easy to manage. Exhibits are always a bit of a challenge to manage, and then particularly in the, the remote setting, it can be a nightmare. And then also one thing that many attorneys are concerned about when we're doing remote depositions is keeping our exhibits a secret until we want to show them to the other side. And uh, other providers that I've had experience with aren't so hot with that, and you kind of have to make them available to everyone. And you have kind of a clever way, maybe clever is not the word, but an innovative way of allowing the attorney who's taking the deposition to control whether and when and how those exhibits are are disclosed in the course of the deposition. Yeah, that's exactly right, Max. We worked with software developers to create a, an indexer software where we can take documents and quickly create an index with hyperlinks. And so mm-hmm. our clients would give us 100 documents and they weren't sure how many of them they were going to use for exhibits. And we told them, oh, don't worry, you know, use this index. We hyperlinked all the documents to the actual exhibit. And then we only pulled out the documents that were marked as exhibits to the final transcript. So it's been a great workflow. We did 60 second promo video on it. We went all in and it certainly paid off for us. That's great. Well, another question I have is just, I think of you guys as a a newer entrant into this marketplace. How long has Fort's been around and how did you get your start? So we started our business in uh, December of 2015. I did work at two other more national, you know, litigation support court reporting firms before we started our business. So we are, you know, relatively young in this market. I come from a sales and technology background, Max, and just by the course of working in this industry since 2016, was able to to gain a lot of traction and, and loyal clients. And so in 2015, we decided that was the the right time for us to to kind of do it ourselves. And it's been a a great success. And we've been fortunate enough to to make the Inc. 5000 now two years in a row, which is the fastest growing privately held companies in America. And so to be, make that list two years in a row with only being around for, you know, six years now is is quite the accomplishment for our business. So we're we're very fortunate. We love our clients. They make it easy to, to do business with. So it's been a great ride for us. Well, I did not know that about you making that list, but I'm not surprised from where I sit. You guys do seem to be growing like gangbusters and for good reason. You provide wonderful customer service and just excellent, high quality service. Again, I think of you guys as a go-to. I know that I can pick up the phone, call you, call Colin, call whoever it is that picks up the phone. And uh, if you guys don't have an answer, you get me an answer pretty quick. Just another example, I remember I needed interpreters for one Spanish and another sort of more exotic language uh, for a deposition, um, you guys handled it and, and got great interpreters for me. Yeah. And so, Max, like availability is underrated. It's everything to an yeah. attorney. <laughs> you know, and like we we understand that the the fast paced nature of our business, you know, when you're calling and you want to talk to someone. And so we're always available and our emails are always being answered in a, in a very timely fashion. So, you know, that's our, our pride and we've embraced that and we've become known for that is, okay, I got this weird request, who can handle it? Fort's legal and I know they're going to be available for us. Sean, I want to take this opportunity to thank you and to thank Fort's Legal for your sponsorship of the Litigation War Room podcast. Truly, we would not be able to do this without you. So thanks very much. Oh, you're welcome, Max. You guys are doing a great job. 
You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war room.